On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk. Today is May the 28th. It is known as Amnesty International Day because it was on this day in 1961 that an article appeared in the press from a man called Peter Benenson who was calling for an organisation like Amnesty to come into being. He was described as a bowler hat barrister uh, some sort of like legal Mr. Ben, uh, but not alone in his endeavour. Um, Irish people will be central to amnesty from its foundation and typically enough, the whole question mark around the governance and independence of Ireland would prove to be one of its earliest headaches. Uh, Donald Fallon is here to tell us all about it. Donald, amnesty, an organisation that still makes plenty of headlines. Yeah, look, it, it's a story that's still being written in some ways, isn't it? And like the organisation claims millions of members internationally and the world is very different uh, from when it was founded. I mean, this was born in the time of the Cold War and when you look at its website today, it's, you know, the plight of women in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, you know, amongst other things. And the offices of the organisation, kind of unsurprisingly, uh, were closed down in, mm. in Russia last year. So it, it still exists. But it all began on this day, 1961, if you picked up the papers, you know, the Observer uh, newspaper. Of course it was the Observer. Yeah, of course if you picked up the Observer <laughs> in 1961 on this day, you would have read The Forgotten Prisoners, penned by English barrister Peter Benenson. And, you know, this was an article that in, in today's terms went viral. This this wasn't common at the time mm. for this to happen, but the piece was kind of republished internationally in a number of languages. And it's probably fair to say it's one of the most influential pieces of 20th century journalism because it's not so much a call to arms, you know, as, as a call to down them and, mm. and the world set up and listened. Uh, it is, of course, a piece that was in The Observer because you wouldn't get that sort of thing in the Sunday Telegraph. Um, <laughs> madly enough, it seems the whole thing was inspired by a little protest. This is the most, like, uh, yeah. like, like namby-pamby liberal thing. Isn't it? A, a protest... <laughs> In a wine bar in Lisbon. <laughs> Every, everything needs its, its origin story, right? And apparently, this is the Amnesty International origin story. Benenson writes in his article, there's a growing tendency all over the world to disguise the real grounds upon which nonconformists are imprisoned. And apparently, the nonconformists that inspired his piece, the legend has it, two Portuguese students. And he later says in an interview... In November 1960, uh, I was on the tube reading, rather uncharacteristically, the Daily Telegraph. Well, there you go, yeah. <laughs> there you go. And I came on a short paragraph that related how two Portuguese students have been sentenced to terms of imprisonment for no other offence than having drunk a toast to liberty in a Lisbon restaurant. Okay. So that is, right. that is said to be the origin of it. And look, Portugal yeah. back then, people are often surprised, people forget this, Portugal wasn't a democracy. Portugal mm. was a dictatorship. Like, like next door. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. And mm. Benenson always went back to this tale but like historians of amnesty have, have done the digging and they've tried to find these, you know, two students in the Lisbon wine bar and they can't. So there's a little uncertainty around it. But definitely people were being locked up uh, in, in Lisbon for such little acts of resistance uh, at the time. Uh, one aspect of amnesty's history that people might know, actually, is that one of the key figures in all of this was a former IRA chief of staff. Yeah, so Benenson's name is, is not widely known in this country. And you'll often hear people say, and I've probably said it on this slot, that Sean McBride founded Amnesty International. Yeah. He's the first chairman of Amnesty and their, their headquarters in Dublin's on Fleet Street. It's in Sean McBride House. And he's just an amazing guy. I mean, he's the son of Major John McBride and, and Maud Gone. He joined the IRA as a teenager. He took part in the War of Independence, the Civil War, uh, went on to found Clan Napublica. And yeah, just an amazing life. You know, Chief of Staff of the IRA in the 1930s, Minister for External Affairs in the first inter-party coalition, never loses that brilliant French accent. 
when you listen to Sean <laughs> speaking English in, in archive footage, he, he still speaks it like a Frenchman, you know, he's, he's speaking in a second language. And one of the most influential, interesting figures in, in Irish public life, but arguably, actually, the most important stuff he, he did wasn't in the in the dolls, it was in, in the courts. And mm. it was at the legal profession that made Sean so significant. I mean, he'd gone to the European Court of Human Rights around the internments without trial of, of, of Republican prisoners. And prisoners' rights were really always a thing that were kind of close to his heart. Uh, when he wins the Nobel Prize for Peace, he says in his speech, there's nothing more damaging to the concept of world order and peace than the massive violations of human rights that continue to occur in various parts of the world. The torture and massacres of political prisoners have spread like a malignant, contagious disease from country to country. Which is a remarkable um, viewpoint to take on anyone's front, but it's also remarkable that his life brought him on a very, very different journey from that of his father, yeah. Major John. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of funny, isn't it? He won the Nobel Prize for Peace. The man who chased his mother for years won the Nobel Prize for Literature, <laughs> WB Yeats. Yeah. But I, I, he also brought Yeats' body back from France, which must have been incredibly weird, yeah. you know, given the relationship between Ma'am, Yeats sorry, and his, back, and back his mother. Ma'am, sorry, back in a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, the son yeah. of a 1916 martyr, the first chairman of Amnesty International. And yeah, like Major John McBride, a Boer War veteran who ends up buried in quicklime, you know, for his role in the Easter Rising. By comparison, Sean McBride's funeral is attended by the President of Ireland, representatives of the African National Congress, Bono, you know, and the rest ah, of yes, you two, yeah. and everyone else imaginable. So his life went a little bit differently. The third, the third from, branch of government. Exactly, <laughs> from, from Major McBride. Uh, the Minister for uh, Retiring Motorbikes. Um, the founder, though, uh, Peter Bennison, uh, the, the bowler hat barrister, as we mentioned, um, he had the vision uh, of trying to set up an organisation like this. He didn't have the experience. No, he didn't. And we, we kind of like the underdogs in, the, in in this slot. And Peter is kind of anything but that. You know, his maternal grandfather was a mine owner and a banker. He yeah. was educated at Eton. This is like Elon Musk sort of being a self-made billionaire who just happened to have a father who owned an emerald mine. And he, yeah, he'd gone into the law. And, you know, that intro, that description of him for, in the introduction is fantastic from a contemporary who called him a bowler-hatted barrister. But like kind of most good ideas in human history... Uh, this one was formulated in the pub, the White Swan, which was yeah. around the corner from his legal chambers. And it's just a really nice account of what it was like in those earliest days. Linda Rabin, a historian, uh, she quotes from the earliest workers in the organisation. We experimented all the time, trying to improve, making it more professional, quite simply because it was so terribly unprofessional. <laughs> and another member of staff compared the founder to a tornado. I don't know if that's a compliment or an, or an insult. Yeah. But most things that are new and ambitious, they kind of go through these kind of mad periods where yeah. they don't really know what they are. But he wanted it to be international. He, he travels to make, it's all in the name, isn't it? Mm, it's yeah. not Amnesty, it's Amnesty International and he travels the world to make that happen and then any movement needs its symbols its iconography and it's so early on 1961 that first year yeah. uh, London based member Diana Redhouse designs the candle and barbed wire logo wow. and people might not realise like you, if you think in your head listening to this what is the Amnesty International logo it is in there somewhere everyone yes. knows it everyone's seen it it's quite iconic actually but it goes back to 1961 Um internationally uh, I suppose this is one of the big issues you have when you're trying to set up something new and you want it to have this worldwide ambit but not everyone has the same viewpoint worldwide you have some questions which are ideologically tricky because there's some instances in which you can maybe argue that political yeah. violence is justified or, yeah. or, or that it's, it should be sanctioned in these cases and Amnesty is kind of pulled between both sides and the global tug of war so Sean McBride wins the Nobel Prize for Peace and he wins the Lenin Prize which is the Soviet equivalent. Yeah. Very few people, he might be the only person who does that. So they're caught in the kind of Cold War world and Rabin makes that point. She says, Amnesty members began to congratulate themselves when governments of every ideological variety accused them of being tools or agents of the enemy in the Cold War. Yeah. So you can be condemned by the Chinese government, the Russian government, the Americans, the British, you know, within, within a week. But then there are really big questions. So for example, uh, Nelson Mandela. Do you, do you represent Nelson Mandela? Because 
ideologically at that moment in time you know Mandela still believes in, in, in the armed struggle in South Africa yeah. uh, you have people sitting in Armagh jail for example uh, and, and Longkesh so the organisation is faced with this really really big dilemma uh, could the name prisoner of conscience be bestowed on Nelson Mandela if he quote unquote you know advocated violence and if you bear in mind then where the origins of Amnesty International come from so that if this is an organisation which is ultimately sort of founded in Britain and it's based on somebody writing a letter to a British newspaper and all of this then of course although it wants to have a worldwide viewpoint that British sensibility is always going to be very influential so the question mark of what you do about the North and self-described prisoners of conscience there must have been something that caused Amnesty not to make too many friends. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the press in Britain were, were not always favourable to their to their coverage of, of events in the North. So, for example, uh, they do a great report on the internment, 1971, the Special Powers Act. Uh, and it's up online today, actually, on, on, on you know, Kane, the archive of the, of the Northern Conflict. Yes, yeah. Uh, it's just an amazing read. I mean, this is stuff that fell through the cracks. cracks. No one else went looking for this. Many were arrested by mistake, one of the men most severely brutalised was 61 years old and the licensed owner of two guns savagely attacked in his own home by soldiers and again at an army camp. He is a Protestant living in a Roman Catholic area and friendly with the local police, no criminal record, not active in politics and obviously was one of many arrested mistakenly on the 9th of August. His treatment typified the careless and brutal methods of the army left to their own devices and being permitted to detain any person they desire. Just incredible stuff. Yeah. The madness of internment where totally innocent people are caught up in, in, in this lunacy. So that kind of report is largely ignored in the British press, as you can imagine. Mm. But it, it still has impacts politically. I mean, it, it's still known by government that you know people are aware of what's happening. So I think that the very idea that the North was now watched, if you will, the very idea that there was an organisation like Amnesty that was watching these things, I think that would be a positive force for change. Yeah, I, mean, I think well, the government knew it was, it was there. It's, it's certainly hard to imagine that there would be so much attention paid to those who were arrested and interned totally by mistake or mistaken identity. It, it's it's hard to imagine anyone paying attention to that without there being a body like Amnesty sitting on the sidelines Absolutely. To, to observe all this. Um, going forwards, um, of course, Amnesty is not showing any signs of slowing down, but there will probably always be campaign groups of the likes of Amnesty. Yeah, and look, an NGO like Amnesty will always divide public opinion. Uh, and some people will question, you know, why do they focus on this and they don't focus on that? You know, why the people, the prisoners here and not the prisoners there? And yeah, I think people often feel that, you know, an organisation like it, its priorities might be wrong. So, for example, Kurdish protesters in Britain actually occupied the offices of Amnesty International not too long ago. Yeah. So I suppose people say, you know, what about us? And that that's common enough with, with a group like this. Yeah. People would feel that way. But, you know, whatever is going to be going forward, what's going to be its place in the world? I mean, I think we can all probably agree that the ultimate aspiration is a world in which it's no longer needed. Wouldn't it be great to hear mm. Amnesty International no longer serves a purpose and we're shutting it down? Uh, wouldn't the bowler-headed barrister only love that? Imagine I, all I, the people, as John Lennon <laughs> said. I, but I love that, like, that a, bowl, a bowler-hatted barrister and an IRA chief of staff uh, that ulti- bar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and, and what results is another gem of a hidden history from Donald Fallon who's the author of Three Castles Burning the Eason's Book of the Year 2022 which is a history of Dublin in 12 streets available wherever uh, you get all of your good books he's also the presenter of the podcast of the same name well worth checking out anywhere you get your audio On the Record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11 Brought to you by PwC a dedicated private business team built around you it all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.